Well, good morning. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 12 today. I want to welcome, of course, all those worshiping here in our celebration service, uh, those who have joined us in our summit service today, and then all those watching from home. It's a good day to worship our Lord. Tonight, I'll just remind you, we have a very special service. Uh, The time is six o'clock tonight. Uh, We're calling it a night of worship. We'll sing, we'll preach and teach. Uh, But the highlight of tonight is that we will be ordaining uh, five new deacons, servant leaders here for our church. And I hope you'll join us tonight. Uh, It won't be a long service. Uh, I think you will enjoy uh, gathering together, worshiping the Lord, praying for these men and for our church in the days to come. Uh, We hope we'll see you tonight at six o'clock. Uh, We've been preaching through the book of Revelation now for a number of weeks, took a little detour last week to focus on something, but we're back to Revelation chapter 12. And I thought I'd begin by giving a little bit of an overview of where we are so far in our study of this great book. The book of Revelation is a vision that was given to John by Christ. John, one of the disciples, one of the apostles, and Christ told John to write this down and to present it to the church and that, and that John would see in this vision something of what was, what is, and what will be. It was written, first of all, for the encouragement of those late first century Christians that John knew and who would be the first readers of this vision. It was also written for the encouragement of people like us who live in the church age and look forward to the soon return of Christ. And it would be given for an encouragement to those who will live in the very last times and may experience some of these, uh, some of these events. Uh, we're reminded that the book of Revelation is not just a collection of future news headlines. It is that, and, and there is some of that here, but we read the book of Revelation and we study it for what it says to us today. I don't think I've said this so far in the study, uh, but this is what we call apocalyptic literature. Now, here's why that's important. There are all kinds of different literature in the Bible. Uh, We read the Gospels. We read, of course, in the Old Testament, the prophecy books and the Psalms. Those all read very differently. We see in the New Testament, the epistles, books like Romans and 1 Corinthians. But then we come to the book of Revelation, and it is just different than all of the other books. It's It's a different feel. It uses different vocabulary, different ways to explain things. And it's because this is apocalyptic literature. Now that means it's a mixture of images and symbols and literal descriptions. It's not necessarily chronological. It is in places, but sometimes it is not. And its purpose, anytime we have this kind of literature, is to communicate not so much the details of the matter as it is to communicate these broad sweeping truths and principles and these important things we should know about the Lord. Now, what's most important about the book of Revelation is that it is both by and about Jesus Christ. And when we study the book of Revelation, we should come away with every chapter saying, recognizing how great is Christ. And we've sought to do that all the way through this, uh, this book. Now, when we 
seek to take the book of Revelation and uh, put it on a timeline, we run into some challenges. And we've acknowledged those as we've gone through this book. But let me see where we are so far and see if I can fit this together a little bit. When we get to the beginning, when we come to the beginning of the revelation, we see that there is a question raised in heaven. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to execute God's plan for creation? And then there was weeping because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and execute God's plan until Jesus stepped forward as both the lion and the lamb, and he was able to open the scroll and execute God's plan. And so that began. We believe that at some point, very near to that event, would be something we call the rapture of the church. And the timing is difficult here, but we believe that there will be a time associated with that time where all the Christians who live in the world will be taken up into heaven. They will be raptured away. And then Jesus will open this scroll and he will begin to execute God's plan. Now the scroll has seven seals and each time one of those seals is open, it brings a new and a fresh expression of the wrath of God to a sinful world, to a rebellious world. Jesus will open fully the scroll, all seven seals. And then there are the seven trumpets. And each trumpet is blasted. And each blast represent again some new expression of God's judgment upon the world. That brings us all the way to the end of chapter 11. And we start today in chapter 12. Now 12, 13, and 14... These three chapters really take a little bit of a step back and they take a survey of history really all the way from the beginning and they talk about sin and creation, they talk about the life of Jesus, they talk about redemption. Uh, All of those things are bundled together in these chapters and this is an example of how sometimes in the book of Revelation we step away from the chronological story and we just focus on some great truth that God would have us have us to see. I want to begin reading in Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, and we'll read maybe a dozen verses. I want you to get the feel. We can't read the entire passage, 13, 14, and so forth, but I want you to get a feel for what we're looking at today, and then we'll zero down on one of these, on one of these verses. Chapter 12, verse 1 says, a great sign appeared in heaven A woman clothed with sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in labor and agony as she was about to give birth. And then another sign appeared in heaven, and there was a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on its heads were seven crowns. Its tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that when she did give birth, it might devour her child. She gave birth to a son, a male who is going to rule all the nations with an iron rod. Her child was caught up to God to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God to be nourished there for 1,260 days. Then War broke out in heaven. Can you imagine? War in heaven? Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels also fought, but he could not prevail. And there was no place for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was thrown out, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. 
He was thrown to the earth and his angels with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven say these words, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down. Now verse 11 is going to be our key verse today. It says they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives to the point of death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you with great fury, because he knows his time is short. And so here we have just an incredible story. There's a pregnant woman, there's a baby, there's an evil dragon, there's this cosmic uh, cataclysm of some sort, there's war in heaven. I want us to look at some of those things and really to get the full message that God has for us today. I, I want to answer four questions, and these will seem uh, maybe academic a little bit, but I, I think they're important questions and they're questions that people ask and we find the answers for these questions right here in chapter 12. And then I want us to see how the battle that is described here is not just a future battle, but it is a present battle. And I want us to see from verse 11 how we can conquer. And most of all, I want us to see something of the wonder of Christ. So deep question number one, what is Israel's role and why did God choose that nation? Now you might say, Pastor, I didn't see anything about Israel here. Uh, what, why are we asking that question and why are we asking that question with these verses? But I, I want to show you, it, it's right here. If you look back at verse 1 and verse 2, it, it says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with sun, with the moon under her feet, a crown, 12 stars on her head. And then it talks about her pregnancy. She cried out in labor. She gave birth to a son. Who is this woman? Well, to understand who the woman is, we need to understand who the son is. And so you look back at verse 5 that we just read. She gave birth to a son, a male who is going to rule all nations with an iron rod. And he was caught up to God, to his throne. That, obviously, is Christ. And so this is the one that gives birth to Christ. It's not Mary, and there are a lot of verses we could go to, uh, Genesis 37, 9, and other places to see that. This is talking about the very nation of Israel. This is talking about the Jewish people who, who birth the Savior, so to speak, and bring blessing to, to the whole world. Now, th this is an important thing that Sometimes in all of our focus on the different verses in the Bible, we fail to see God's long game here. And I want you to see it because it, it really shows up here in chapter 12. I want to direct your attention to Genesis 12. Now we're in Revelation 12. That's the 12th chapter of the last book. But you don't have to turn here, but let me just read to you a few verses from the 12th chapter of the first book. It says this, the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your land, your relatives, your father's house, and go to the land that I will show you. And so there's this command to go. It says in verse 2, I will make you. This is God's promise to Abraham. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. He says, go and I'm going to bless you. And then verse 3, this is the most important verse. 
I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Now notice the last part of that verse. What he says here is that I'm going to make you into a great nation. This was, well, 2,000, more than 2,000 years before Christ. But I'm going to make you into a great nation. And through that nation, the nation of Israel, I am going to bless the whole world. Now, the blessing he's talking about here is the blessing of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the great, 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 great grandson of Abraham. God made this covenant with Abraham. God made a promise. I will make you into a great nation. You will have a son. This nation will produce a son. And through that son, all peoples will be blessed. Now, I don't want you to think I'm just pulling some connections out of thin air, making something up. Let me read how the apostle Paul explained this in Galatians chapter three. He said, scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles. That means that God would save people like me and you. He would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaim the gospel, the good news ahead of time to Abraham saying all the nations will be blessed through you. And so when God gave this promise, Genesis 12, 3, to Abraham, he was giving him the gospel. That's what, it, that's what Paul said. He was giving him the good news that I'm going to, through you and through the nation that will come from you, bring this great blessing that will equal the redemption of all those who respond to Christ. God reached down. God chose a man 4,200 years ago. God promised that he would turn the man's family into a great nation. He would protect that nation. He would teach the nation something about himself. And he would reveal something about his holiness and his glory to that nation. And then God revealed that he would use that nation to bless and to save the world. And that's encapsulated here in Revelation chapter 12. Now, you might wonder, if you don't, you should... Why did God choose Abraham? Why did God choose Abraham? Uh, this is 4,200 years ago, a long time ago. This is in the late Bronze Age, a thousand years before Homer. God looks down and he has this long game. He has this plan that he is going to bring redemption to the whole world, to all who will respond to Christ. And, and he's looking for a man through whom he's going to create this nation and bring this blessing. And he chooses Abraham. Why did he choose Abraham? What's so special about Abraham? Well, Abraham is called the father of the Jews. Why is he called that? Well, Abraham's son is Isaac. Isaac's son is Jacob. Jacob was renamed by the Lord Israel. And Jacob has 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel. So Abraham is the great-great-grandfather no, the great-grandfather of Israel, the whole nation comes from Abraham. And so Abraham is the father of the Jews. Now, do you remember that song that we learned when we were kids? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Do you know that song, choir? I am one of them, and so are you, so let's just praise the Lord. Then you start doing a little dance or something I won't demonstrate. Now, why do we teach our kids that song? Because we're not ethnic Jews. He's not our biological 
grandfather. Well, we teach that song because Christians too call Abraham a father, but we do so in a very different way. For Christians, Abraham is not our biological grandfather, but Abraham is the father of our faith. Now, this gets us back to the question of why God chose Abraham. This is such an important question, whether you've ever wondered or not. So listen, did God choose Abraham because of something noble about Abraham's character or something about his faithful devotion to the Lord? Did God look down and say, I'm so impressed with Abraham, he's the one I choose? No. There is nothing in the Bible and nothing in history that records anything noteworthy about Abraham or his parents or his siblings with respect to their character or their faithful devotion to God. In fact, here's what we know about Abraham before he was chosen. His father's name, Terah, T-E-R-A-H. The word Terah, it was the name for the Chaldean moon god. So his father carries as his name the name of a pagan god. And then his father names his son Abram. Abram means the father is exalted. But he's not talking about the father in the Bible. No, when his when Terah named Abraham the father is exalted, he's talking about the pagan gods of the moon cult of Ur. So here's what we know about Abraham. Polytheistic family, pagan worshiper most likely, but God reached down and chose him. Why did God choose Abraham? It wasn't because of something great about Abraham. It was because of God's love for Abraham and it was because of God's purposes. Now here's why, here's why that's important. Abraham then hears that call from God and responds in faith. Genesis 15, 6 says, Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Abraham was not righteous. He was not right with God. But when God called on him and he believed God, he trusted God, then God said, I will count that I will credit that to you. I will count that as right with God. Why was Abraham right with God? Because he believed, because he trusted. And God says, I'll count that. Now, why is that important to us? Well, because it's the same thing today. Listen again to how Paul explains it. Galatians chapter three, you are just like Abraham who believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. You know then that those who have faith, they are the sons of Abraham. See, I I am not a Christian because of my noble character or because of some great sacrificial devotion to God. No, God reached out to me. God convicted me. God called on me and I believed him and I believed in Jesus and I believed that what Jesus did on the cross was enough and God said to me what God said to Abraham, I will count that as righteousness. And here's why that's such good news. Here's why it's great news that he is the father of our faith because the only hope any of us have is that God would count our faith as righteousness. 
Now, why is that important? Because it is the basis of our hope that we have in God. It is the basis of our salvation. And so Israel, the long game, Israel, right here, chosen, chosen, because Abraham was chosen by the love and the purposes of God, responded in faith. God credited it to him as righteousness. And we're encouraged by that today. We're encouraged by that today. Now, the second question I want to answer uh, very quickly is then, who is Satan and where did he come from? Now, where, where do we see that in this passage? Well, if you look at verses 3 and 4 of Revelation chapter 12, you see something of this uh, red dragon, the tail that swept away a third of the stars in heaven, hurled them down to earth. We see that the dragon is seeking to kill, to devour the son of, of Israel. Well, here the dragon is Satan. And the Bible makes it very clear here and in other places that Satan was a former servant of God and he rebelled. And when he rebelled, he took a third of the angels with him. That's where the demons come from. That's one of the ways you can see how here in chapter 12, we're not just talking about chronology. We're, we're taking a pretty big history, pretty big picture of history. But it says here now that Satan fights against God fights against God's purposes, fights against God's people. We see he wages a war in heaven. Now, two things you need to know about that war. First of all, God is still 100% sovereign. This is not a battle in the sense that there's some question or some doubt about the outcome. God is simply using Satan and his rebellion and his war and his schemes for God's own purposes. And we're going to see that in the next chapter's as we continue our study in the book of Revelation. So the first thing you need to know is that God, God wins. God is sovereign. There's no question about that. Uh, the second thing, and connected to that, you need to know, is that Satan is already defeated. Satan was defeated at the cross. Uh, there's just going to be some time. And this, too, is in the sovereignty of God and, and something God's using for his purposes Satan is defeated, but there's going to be some time before that defeat is fully uh, f- recognized. But, but before it is, but before the effects of that defeat are are fully fully seen. Uh, I read a story this week, ap- apocryphal probably. I don't know that this is a true story, uh, but it's a preacher story. You know how those are, and uh, it's a story about a missionary in Africa. He and his family. And one day, somehow, a snake got in their home. And it wasn't just any snake. It was an enormous snake, bigger than two men. And so that missionary did exactly what I would do. He ran for his life. <laughs> and um, he found a local who knew how to solve the problem. This man went in with a machete, and he lopped off the head of the snake And he came back out to the missionary and his family standing outside the home, and he declared with confidence, the reptile is defeated. He said, but there's a catch. He said that it's going to take a while for a snake of this size to realize that it's actually dead. Now, I don't know about the biology, so if I'm wrong, I'm wrong on this, but at least the way I heard the story told Uh, The neurology and the blood flow of a snake, especially a large snake like that, uh, can mean that it will continue to move uh, for a long time after it has been decapitated. And so for the next several hours, uh, the family had to wait outside the home as they heard this 
snake thrash around, smashing furniture, flailing against the walls, uh, wreaking havoc, causing messes. And they were frustrated. They were angered. They were sickened at the damage. But then the missionary had an epiphany. He said, Satan is like that big old snake. He's already defeated. He just doesn't know it yet. In the meantime, he's going to do some damage, but in the end, he's a goner. And that's what we see played out here in the book of Revelation. That's what we see played out in many ways in our own lives. Well, there's another question. Uh, These will seem pretty random, but they're important. Another question I think addressed here is, uh, why does the world hate Israel? Have you noticed how the world just seems to hate Israel if you're a student of Of history, you know that. We could go back and really just look through a a long string of uh, attacks upon the people and the nation of Israel from Pharaoh to Nebuchadnezzar to Alexander the Great to Nero to the Turks and the Ottoman Empire, uh, Russia, the Arabs, even Christians. Uh, You know, when Christians did the Crusades, which were which was a very bad idea, and sought to kill the Muslims, which is a was a wrong thing to do. They ended up killing tens of thousands of Jews. Uh, Next to the Holocaust, the largest uh, massacre of Jews was by Christians in the Crusades. And, of course, we have the Holocaust. Why is it that throughout their entire 4,000 years of history uh, that the Jews have been so hated and experienced so much unusable, unusual and terrible persecution? Well, the answer is right here in chapter 12, verse 4, the last part of the verse. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that when she did give birth, it might devour her child. Listen, Satan has been bent on stopping God's plan from the beginning. And when it was was said that God would bring the blessing through the people of Abraham, the nation of Israel, to bless the whole world, Satan from that point forward has sought to destroy the nation of Israel. And all of this persecution and hatred, it is satanically inspired, it is satanically led, and it will continue until Satan is fully and finally defeated at the end of the book of Revelation. Now, another question, what role then does Israel play in the end times? Well, I know a lot of you are asking that question as we're going through the book of Revelation. You're reaching out to me about that. And so let me just give a quick answer. God has not finished blessing the nations through Christ. So he is not finished with the nation of Israel. And what has happened since 1948, if you know your history a little bit, it's just amazing that the nation of Israel could, could be gone, really, for 2,000 years And then to be reconstituted as a nation, that says something about what God is up to in the preparations for the very end times. And while we may not know all of the details, there is, it is an undeniable fact that that there's something special going on here and that God is doing something wonderful and amazing and and God is not finished uh, with his purposes for the nation of Israel. And we see some of that right here in chapter 12. Now, with those questions answered, let's turn to some instructive things right here in in this chapter. Remember that this is referring 
uh, to a future event. And that is certain, but it also speaks to a present struggle. We need to look at how in this future event, these Christians were able to be conquerors and learn how we today in a similar but not the same spiritual battle that we too can be conquerors. But before we see the strategy, and it's right there in verse 11, I want to make sure that we rightly identify the battleground and the battle lines. So let me tell you this. This is, this is review, I'm sure. But let me remind you that the problems that we face today, that we identify as problems with people, problems with government, problems with the world, are really and primarily problems with Satan, his forces, and his schemes. The Bible says as much in Ephesians six twelve when it says our struggle is not against fresh flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heaven. We are fighting a spiritual battle. The Bible also says that Satan is our adversary. First Peter five eight, and we learn from Scripture that Satan employs two primary weapons. One of those is the weapon of accusation, and the other is the weapon of deception. Now, with accusation, Satan accuses us to us and to God, and he accuses us of sin. He says that we are guilty. He says that we are worthless. He says that we have no reason to believe that we're right with God. He says that there's no hope for us. He says that there's no hope in God's grace and God's mercy, and that our lives are ruined. And And his goal, the point of his accusation, is to convince you and to convince the Father that we are past rescue and that it's hopeless. So he is the accuser. But he's also a deceiver. Deception is a a weapon. When Satan speaks, he always lies. He says God's way is not the best way. He says that that God will not really judge sin. He says that God's word is not true and applicable to your life. He says the world has a better way than God's way. He says you, you can guide your life better than God can guide your life. He denies both God's justice and God's goodness. And every problem in life can be traced back to Satan is an accuser and Satan is a deceiver. So how do we conquer? How do we live these lives in, this, in the midst of this battle that we're in? Well, I think we look to this future battle. We see how they conquered and that's how we conquer. So look with me again in verse 11. This is... This is my favorite verse in all the book of Revelation. It says, they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the point of death. You know, we're not going to defeat Satan by means of some incantation or exorcism or some ritual formula or binding him. Uh, Satan is too clever for those things. But the Bible makes it clear These are the strategies that will help us to conquer in this spiritual battle. So I'm not going to take much time, but I I want us to look at three things that they will do to conquer and that we can do to conquer right here in verse 11. Number one, we must look to Christ. Notice it says in the beginning of the verse, they conquered by the blood of the lamb, the blood of the lamb. Now the blood of the lamb refers to the blood of Christ 
shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. All of those who are children of God have the assurance that they have been forgiven of all their sins, past, present, and future, because Christ's blood, his sacrifice is enough. It's sufficient to cover our sins. Now, how does that work? Well, that's the good news of Jesus Christ. I am guilty of sin. My sin separates me from God. In fact, my sin drives me from God. Even one sin. It's not a little bit of sin drives me a little way and a little bit more drives me a little bit more. No, God's sin, one sin separates me from God. And I am hopeless and I can't redeem myself because the payment for that sin, the penalty of that sin is death. But Jesus came and said, I will take the penalty of your sins. And Jesus died on the cross for us. Jesus substituted himself for, our, for us and for our punishment so that we could have the righteousness of Christ. We could have a righteousness, a right standing with God. So if there's never been a time for you that you've understood you were guilty of sin, You've understood the biblical truth that that sin, big or small by the way you measure it, that sin separates you from God forever. But Jesus died for you. And if you'll trust what he's done and surrender your life to him, he will forgive you. You will have a relationship with him. He will be your father and you'll be saved. If that's never happened, today is the day you need to put your trust in Jesus. But you know, so many of us, we have done that, and I'm thankful for that. But what, so what does this say to us? I'm in a spiritual battle. What does it mean that I can conquer as a, as a saved, forgiven child of God, that I can conquer by the blood of Christ? Well, I think it means that I need to say two things to two people. Let me tell you these things. Number one, I need to say something to God. And secondly, I need to say something to myself. What do we need to say to God? Well, we need to confess our sins. The Bible says if I'll confess my sins to God as a Christian, that God will forgive my sins. I need to confess my sins. not, Not so much to receive the forgiveness of God. That came when I put my trust in Christ. But to experience the forgiveness of God. To experience the benefits of the forgiveness of God. To remove the guilt and the shame and to restore my relationship with Christ. And, listen to this, to destroy the weapon of Satan. Because Satan, all he wants to do is accuse me. Well, I need to accuse me. I need to go before God and say, God, I've sinned and I've failed. And here's how I've failed in the last day. And I need to confess my sin. Adrian Rogers, I was reading something he wrote this week. He said, I will never, no, never, no, never have victory over Satan as long as there is unconfessed, unrepented of sin in my heart and my life. And he's right. There's something To to conquer by the blood of the lamb means there's something I need to say to God. I need to confess my sin daily to the Lord. The Bible warns us in Ephesians chapter 4 not to give Satan a foothold in our life. And when we have unconfessed sin, we are giving him a foothold that, that he'll use to bring frustration and discouragement and guilt and condemnation. And he'll use one sin to lead us to another sin. We need to say something to God. We need to confess our sins. Secondly, we need to say something to ourselves. We need to remind ourselves that we are forgiven. The blood of the lamb has bought our forgiveness. Satan can accuse me of sin. My sin is covered. And there's nothing I could do that could ever make God love me more. And there's nothing I have done that could ever make God love me less because I'm accepted 
by what Jesus has done for me. And I need to say something to God, confess my sins. I need to say something to myself about the blood of the lamb. And I need to neuter uh, Satan's weapon of accusation. How do we conquer? We conquer by the blood of the lamb. Secondly, very quickly, we conquer. uh, We must talk to Christ, talk of Christ. So we look to Christ. We talk of Christ. It says here, verse 11, they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Now, what does that mean? The word of their testimony, the word of their testimony that that he's talking about the story of how they came to know Christ, the word of their testimony. My testimony is that I, I was guilty of sin. I trusted Christ. Christ saved me and changed my life from the inside out. That's, that's the testimony. The testimony is that the power is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how we conquer Satan is by saying the testimony, talking of the gospel. You know, the world's ways don't work. Have you noticed that? The world's ways to create a happy, healthy marriage, they don't work. The world's ways to overcome depression, stress, and anxiety don't work. The world's ways uh, to bring about justice and control crime, they don't work. The world's ways to overcome racism and provide equal justice, they don't work. The world's ways to solve childhood poverty and hunger, they don't work. The world's ways to overcome alcohol and drug abuse, they don't work. And I'm not trying just to be sad Sally or pessimistic Paul, but with all the advancements in technology and therapy and drugs and the new approaches to mental health and marriage and family counseling and education and psychology, you would think that we, were, we would all be living in some sort of utopia by now. But we're not because the world's ways don't work. Even if we put a Christian label on them and repackage them and call them Christian steps, listen, if it's not the gospel, it doesn't work. What the world needs is not more of all of these worldly things. What the world needs more of is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll share with you, and I don't have much time, but but let me just share with you a couple of passages that put this in perspective. And I, I won't even really comment on these, but I, I just, I want you to be thinking about them. First Peter 1, 18 and 19. For you know that you are redeemed from your empty way of life inherited from your ancestors. So we have been redeemed from this empty worldly way of life. Not with perishable things like silver and gold. We haven't been redeemed by the things of the world. He says, no, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. The answer to every problem is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 10 says, although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war with the flesh, since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. But powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds, we demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. What what, what he says is it's it's not the mechanisms of the world, it's not the wisdom of the world, but it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now what does that say to us? It says that the role of the church is critical to the health of our society and for the hope of mankind. It says that the church, listen church, the church must champion the gospel. We've got to make sure that that's what we focus on. We have to keep the main thing, the main thing. It's the gospel the world needs. Nobody else is giving them the gospel. We've got to give them the gospel. And we must be faithful to our mission. We must not be distracted. And then the third thing, very quickly, that we must do in order to conquer, you see it right there at the end of verse 11, 
for they did not love their lives to the point of death. Now, this means what it means, but it's, it's applied to different people at different times and different places in different ways. When John wrote this, many of his church members uh, were being executed for their faith. And there will come a day again when, uh, when, when this is uh, a happening, that people will be executed for their faith. And, and there are places in this world where that's happening today. Not likely to happen in Nacogdoches this week. Not likely to happen any of us executed for our faith. So how does this apply to us to the point of death? I think it means this. Listen, church, so this is how it applies. We need to live for another world. We need to live for another, for another country. We need to live for an eternity. You see, when I decide how I'm going to invest my time and my money and my energy, when I, when I decide how I'm going to arrange my life and what the goals are for my life and, and what, I, what I consider a success or a failure and, and how I want to spend my days, we need to live like we really believe that we're going to live forever somewhere else. We need to live. We need to minister. We need to volunteer. We need to give. We need to serve. Like this is but temporary, and we are preparing for a a different place and a different time. We need to have a faith that goes all the way through the end of life. We can conquer That is the ultimate message of Revelation. We can conquer. We will conquer. God will conquer. Christ will conquer. But we can conquer now, verse 11. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Listen, if we will will call upon, remember, focus on the blood of the Lamb, if we will communicate the word of our testimony, We will live for another world. We will handicap Satan, and we will be victorious for our Savior. Head bowed, eyes closed. Father in heaven, I pray as people respond today that lost people, people who have never trusted in you, will come forward and be saved today. Put their faith and trust in you. And Father, those that are saved, that we will conquer by the blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony word of our testimony, and because we live through past the point of death. Father, thank you for your strength and the spirit within us. May we live our lives in a way that will honor you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we worship.